great studies on Kant and the divine concepts like that. But Kant as a um, somebody who is theologically engaged uh, in wanting to reflect on God, etc., but um, not as a Christian theologian. And this is a project that um, you're going to open up for us. The, the life after, life after Kant, after you've made the world safe. <laughs> what do you do with it now? Which is really looking at the traces of transcendence in secular philosophers uh, who might not really want to own the notion of them doing this in any conventional way. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Turning out uh, on the evening like this, really appreciate it. So the presentation will come in three stages. First of all, I'd like to set out the wider intellectual project, which provides the context for the interest in pantheism. Having done that, in the second stage of the presentation, I want to give you a sort of narrative of a problem that I encountered in my research on pantheism. I was unable to solve this problem. It is then a story of failure. Stories of other people's failure can be fun, unless they become too tone-curlingly needy and an implicit demand for reassurance. So the third stage of the presentation, then, will present a sort of how I got out of the whole narrative, where I also set out some of my deeper motivations for the attention to pantheism. <coughs> With research, you have to put the work in, but also sometimes you need a bit of luck. Something occurs to you, or it doesn't. Well, something did occur to me, a different perspective on the issue, and I thought that it helped. I'll try to outline this alternative perspective, but whether the luck involved in this alternative viewpoint was good or bad, you could be the judge. So first of all, something about my wider intellectual project. I'm currently running a Templeton-funded project on what I've called negative natural theology. This is part of a wider project run by Judith Wolfe and St. Andrews called Widening Horizons in Philosophical Theology. The project involves a serious series of workshops and will result in a monograph, which I'm currently writing. One of the topics I explore is pantheism. So what's the negative natural theology project about? So I begin with the observation that our lives are, more or less, and to different degrees and at different times, beset by limits, by compartmentalizations, tensions, conflicts, fragmentation and disintegration. When there is a desire for a type of wholeness, or at least a partial integration, this can bring about a range of affects and reactions, including conflict, tension, anxiety, yearning and despair. When we bring these tensions and desires to conscious expression and reflection, we can be said to engage in thinking. And whenever this happens, we become thinkers, even if we're not professionally qualified or employed as such. Some thinkers, when engaging with such limits and tensions, lean into the concept of God or the divine, and others do not. At other times, I've found thinkers orient themselves around a conceptual space that has some divine features, although the concept of the divine is not explicitly employed or is even explicitly rejected. In this context, what might be at stake in employing implicitly or explicitly the concept of the divine or not doing so? This is the question that the project engages with. So the Negative Natural Theology Project is interested in sites and contemporary thinking where the concept of the divine beckons or looms, but also perhaps repels or hides. My intention is to probe the what is at stake question 
in talking about God or the divine or not doing so, with a wide and deep curiosity about what this might include. Reasons and arguments, certainly, but also more biographical, intuitive and affective dimensions, including imagination and feelings about what is valuable. Also relevant may be unconscious drives and factors. Concepts can convince or fail to convince, but also they can attract and repel. So I've just talked about thinkers who lean into the concept of God or the divine and thinkers who do not. And thinkers who orient themselves around a conceptual space that has some divine features, although the concept of the divine is not explicitly employed. Who do I have in mind? Well, I'll give you a few examples of the sort of thing I'm interested in, who are particularly relevant to the topic of pantheism. So in some recent philosophy, there are two notable developments. In recent philosophy of mind, there is a remarkable interest in panpsychism, the view that in some sense consciousness may go all the way down into matter, and to, into all sorts of matter, from amoebas to galaxies. The Durham philosopher Philip Goff is one of the ablest exponents of contemporary panpsychism. The North American philosopher Thomas Nagel is also drawn to panpsychism. He's convinced that current reductive materialist paradigms for explaining consciousness will need to be transformed, abandoned, really. The second movement in recent philosophy is an interest in re-enchanted conceptions of nature, where value resides in nature, independent of the projections we might spread upon the world, and where the non-human world makes strong moral demands upon us. The work of the Indian philosopher Akhil Bigrami, professor at Columbia University, is of particular interest to me here. Bill, Bill Brahmi self-identifies as an atheist, and he wants a re-enchantment of nature without resorting to the sacred. Such a re-enchanted nature, Bill Brahmi hopes, might offer the hope of an unalienated life, of being at home in the world. Thomas Nagel brings both these strands together in his pursuit of what he calls the cosmic question of how to live in harmony with the universe and not just in it. Now here's something that I've noticed about thinkers and philosophers who engage in these areas. Some of them are at pains to distance their approach from the divine or from God. Reference to the divine is denigrated variously as being, and these are all quotes different people, from the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, as being superstitious, pre-scientific, involving rampant Platonism or the injection of the supernatural, <coughs> and a recourse to pre-enlightenment animism or metapersonal. Consider, for example, Thomas Nagel's assertion. Not only does he not believe in God, but he profoundly hopes that there is not a God. At the same time, there is in some cases an un un unacknowledged, I beg your pardon, an acknowledged unease about this quick dismissal of the category of divinity. Akhil Bigrami engages respectfully with Gandhi's notion of the sacred. Philip Goff experiments tentatively with a positive assessment of mystical experience. Nagel admits to sharing in a culturally widespread fear of religion, which fear he himself is strongly subject to. Nonetheless, Nagel considers that his same fear has large and often pernicious consequences for modern intellectual life, buttressing up with ideology rather than evidence or reflection, a reductionist and materialist conception of nature. So that's all part of the context in which I'm interested in the question which I set out above. The question is again, what might be at stake in employing, explicitly or implicitly, the concept of the divine, or not doing so? Now I want to underscore 
few key features of this sort of intellectual inquiry. Its prime aim is simply to understand what is at stake in speaking about the divine or not. I'm not in this paper or in the wider project directly engaged with attempting judgments about the truth or falsity or cogency of the position. I'm interested in uses of the concept of God that are out there and that are employed by people sincerely and seriously. It is, if you like, almost a sort of anthropology of philosophy, trying to understand where and when some thinkers open up to the concept and others do not. You may well have developed views about pantheism, or you might find yourself reacting normatively and strongly, one way or another, to some different pantheisms that I explore. That's nonsense. That's not what I believe. That's fine, and I'm happy to hear about these reactions. But if I myself don't offer such judgments, it's because it's simply not what I'm after here. Why have I called the whole project negative natural theology, of which the interest in pantheism is just a part? Well, the combination of words generates, I find, a pleasing dissonance because of the combination of the adjectives negative and natural. Natural theology involves speaking about God, without reference to revelation, tradition, or sources of authority, using the resources of reason alone. But negative theology is concerned with the way in which our reason, thinking, and speaking might run out without this necessarily being an ending. The term can be held to with a lightness and critical distance. It serves as an icebreaker, a provocation, setting up a sort of dissonance within which discussion can occur. So we've been fortunate enough to persuade both Philip Goff and Akil Bagrami to be involved in the negative natural theology workshops, where we've met and enjoyed serious, sensitive, and honest conversations. Involving, I found, reciprocal vulnerability with theologians such as Karen Kilby and Simon Oliver and Jennifer Hurt, literary scholars such as David Gwan, and philosophers who engage positively with religion such as Mark Wynne and Claire Carmine. So what follows is in part indebted to some of these conversations. So here's my problem which I failed to solve. The two philosophical movements outlined above, panpsychism and the reenchantment of nature, are both broadly speaking naturalistic, even if in an enhanced way. That is, they want to say roughly that the world is all there is. That is, there's nothing over and above the world. There is, for example, no uncreated creator who made or sustains the world. If I have such an imminent conception of the world, can I meaningfully engage with a concept of God or the divine? When posing this question, I seem to be asking, first of all, what the world is, what sort of things make up the world, and then asking what the relationship of the world, so conceived, is to the notion of divinity. The question of what's in the world is, after all, an interesting one. Does the world consist only of fundamental physical particles? Does it also contain powers and dispositions, laws of nature, numbers, consciousness, beauty, and goodness? Now, a natural way of thinking might be as follows, to think that as the world becomes richer and th thicker, as the naturalism becomes more enriched and expanded, we reach a point where we might be tempted to start talking about God, thus making the link with the concept of the divine. So we could almost imagine a sort of incremental sliding scale. I want you to sort of do this. It doesn't matter the exact details of it, but it's a temptation to thought, which I was strongly suspect to when I first started reading in this area. Imagine an incremental sliding scale from a 0 to 100, 
you know, so at different points in the scale, you believe in more and more things, plus everything that came before. So zero, you believe in nothing at all. You score 10 points, perhaps you believe in fundamental particles in motion. 20 points, perhaps you think there are powers and dispositions in nature. You hit 30 points, you believe in all that, but perhaps you have a stronger view of laws of nature, which are more than just descriptions of what's actually happened. Get to 40 points, perhaps you think that numbers are an objective part of the fabric of reality. Get to 50, perhaps you've got some interesting views about consciousness. 60, perhaps you think there are meaningful projections of beauty and goodness, that they come from us, but they're nonetheless valuable. Perhaps at 70, you think that organisms have an intrinsic teleology, um, or you might believe in objective moral truths, perhaps. 80, perhaps you believe in souls. 90, you're getting into sort of beauty and goodness territory. Perhaps you have 100, you think there's an pan-cosmic mind <coughs> contemplating itself and everything on the spectrum, because it's, it's a, a temptation to a model of thinking. There might be debates about the order in here, Someone might think numbers should score more than I've said. That doesn't matter. All that matters is the temptation to think that at a certain point, when the score gets high enough, when the naturalism has expanded enough, it might become appropriate or permissible to use the language of divinity because the world has become interesting enough. Perhaps at a very high score, it might become rather difficult and embarrassing not to speak about God, certainly by the time we reach a pan-cosmic mind possibly at the platonic forms of beauty and goodness. I'll be honest, something like this sliding scale mentality was how I conceived the issue. When I began extensive reading in panpsychism and in enchanted conceptions of nature. But the more I read, the less confident I became in my predictions about whether a particular range of scores would lead someone to talk about God or not. It was very frustrating. I found that it was possible to use the language of the divine say people actually did, sincerely and seriously, when achieving very low scores on the scales in the 10 to 30 range. Also, you can hit the highest scores, near 100, and meaningfully forego or resist the concept of the divine. When I say it's possible, I don't just mean a remote logical possibility. I mean there are living or once living thinkers who've done precisely this. Scored very low and talked about God, or scored very high whilst refusing or strongly hesitating to do so. So try to flesh out that claim of a few examples. So if we hang around the lower end of the scale, we might find people who admit the existence of fundamental <coughs> particles, some powers that structure nature, and um, some laws of nature. Maybe at this point, we don't even believe in objective <coughs> moral realism. It would seem obvious, I thought, that references to God would need more points on the scale than references to objective moral realism. But Wittgenstein said, don't think, but look. When looking and not thinking, thinking whilst looking, of course, but this conviction didn't seem to hold. So if we consider the contemporary movement known as religious naturalism, we find a desire and determination to use the category of God or divinity, alongside sometimes a commitment to a fairly austere and physicalist view of nature, where values are understood sometimes to be frank projections upon nature. In a helpful survey, the religious naturalist Donald Crosby writes that religious naturalists find religious meaning, value and importance solely in nature or in some aspect of the natural order, where nature and its ongoing changes are metaphysically ultimate for religious naturalists. Nothing exists beyond nature, and the supernatural ground of nature is unnecessary. Nature in some form is all that is, ever has been and ever shall be. Quote. 
So Crosby shows that amongst those who are associated with religious naturalism, there's a great deal of variety. Some retain concepts of God and the divine, others don't. Some affirm the whole of nature as the appropriate focus of religious conviction and commitment, and others affirm only a certain aspect of it. When we look at the world, the religious naturalist may be struck by the beauty and majesty of creative processes, or at its size, scale, age, or vitality. Or she may be impressed, as the religious naturalist Jerome Stern is, by our drives towards truth, beauty, selfhood, and justice. That is, by our capacity to project upon values upon the world. The crucial point, the conceptual data that is given to us here, is that a reductive account of the universe is given, and that language of God and divinity is frequently and enthusiastically embraced. Furthermore, this occurs even where there's no strong or sustained desire to challenge the category of the physical or the natural. Now, I acknowledge, of course, the obvious, that there are plenty of other thinkers who embrace a reductive worldview, such as Richard Dawkins, who refuse to use the language of the divine. That's more obvious, I think. Although they may nonetheless write enthusiastically about the inspiring beauty of the world of nature as it presents itself to us. So Richard Dawkins, for example, writes... I want to show you that the real world, as understood scientifically, has magic of its own. The kind I call poetic magic, an inspiring beauty which is all the more magical because it is real, because we can understand how it works. Next to the true beauty of magic of the real world, supernatural spells and stage tricks seem cheap and tawdry by comparison. The magic of reality is neither supernatural nor a trick, but wonderful. Wonderful and real, wonderful because real. So the only difference between a certain sort of religious naturalist and Dawkins is a willingness to make approving reference to religion and God as a way of expressing our joy at the magic of reality. But what sort of difference is this? What's at stake when talking about God and not doing so? At this point on the scale, the difference is not one of degrees of ontological commitment. We find the same puzzle, what's at stake, repeated if we move up the scale so I found it, and begin to consider a range of panpsychist positions. Now, some panpsychist positions are fairly minimalist and low-scoring, and others are more enlarged and ambitious. At the more minimalist end, the philosopher Galen Strawson develops a panpsychist argument that he calls real physicalism, or real materialism. Put briskly, Strawson's argument goes as follows. Experiential consciousness is real. You, now, listening to me, tuning out with my voice in the background, you know this to be the case. You are experiencing it. If everything is material, which Strawson, as a good materialist, accepts, this means that the ultimate nature of matter must include the experiential. This is the most minimal statement possible of what's known as panpsychism, the view that in some sense experience and consciousness go all the way down into fundamental matter. If this claim looks implausible to us, perhaps owing to the mind-body problem, this is because, Strawson suggests, we've not reflected sufficiently on our ignorance of matter. Mind is not the mystery. We all have direct and everyday experience of mind. The deeper mystery is the nature of matter. So Strawson's real materialism is at the most minimal end. Thomas Nagel also thinks that we will need a new paradigm for understanding matter and its relationship to consciousness. Nagel, though, is open to the thought that consciousness occurs on a grand scale, at the level of galaxies, minds much larger than our own, so this is Nagel, 
We know so little about how consciousness arises from matter in our own case and that of the animals in which we identify it, that it would be dogmatic to assume that it does not exist in other complex systems or even in systems the size of a galaxy as a result of the same basic properties of matter that are responsible for us. So Nagel's suggestion here about conscious galaxies remains rather agnostic, a sort of, for all we know, this might be the case. <coughs> some other panpsychists are more convinced of the superior explanatory power of some sort of inclusive pan-cosmic mind of which we are part. So speaking very briskly, this is the way that thinking in this area can proceed. Consider the way in which wholes might be said to be to have a type of priority over parts. If you were to describe a cat, it would be important to say that the eye of the cat is part of the whole, which is the cat. If you neglected to say this, you would not give a proper account of reality. Similarly, we might think a part of a circle is less fundamental than the whole of which it is a part. Possibly then, our finite and limited consciousnesses are parts of a greater and more fundamental whole, which constitutes some sort of unity. This might be envisaged as a cosmic mind which enjoys a considerable degree of structure, unity and self-reflexivity, or it might be more or less undifferentiated, perhaps a more chaotic type of consciousness than the one that we experience. It's tempting to think that the more one approaches a pan-cosmic mind, and the more differentiated and ordered this mind is, the closer we approach something that could be considered divine. Certainly this in some recent articles considering the relationship between panpsychism and pantheism, with in one case an author searching for a suitable candidate for philosophy and religion amongst a range of panpsychist proposals. So the philosophers Freya Matthews and Timothy Sprigg, both self-identified pantheists and panpsychists, seem to be promising candidates on this front. So Timothy Sprigg writes that the totality of things should be regarded as unified where this means that the totality is at least as much of a genuine individual as the most individual part of it. This totality, Sprigg finds, is aptly called God, quote the unified totality of all those finite experiences which are the stuff of the world. Freya Matthews locates individuated relative subjects within a cosmic subject, where the fundamental consciousness of the universe as its whole has its own first-person perspective though it may be a very different kind, to our consciousness. This enables Matthews to develop an explicit spirituality, where the human relationship to the world is conceived of as, quoting, kneeling tenderly at its feet, awaiting its command, trying to divine its will. From this point of view, the world is our sovereign, our solace, our beloved, and we are its people. So we're really high up on the ontological scale now. If we come down a little bit, you might take the Durham philosopher and panpsychist Philip Goff, where he offers a view that finite human minds are aspects of one unified cosmic mind, where each finite consciousness is an instantiation of a general formless consciousness, where formless consciousness may be the intrinsic nature of space-time itself, in a way that's not localised but equally present at all regions of space-time. So if we think of physical objects, as massy regions of space-time, space-time coagulated into mass. We might think in a parallel way, Goff suggests, of ordinary states of consciousness as the intrinsic nature of massy regions of space-time. 
Nonetheless, Goff explicitly steps away from pantheism on the grounds that we need not think of the universe as a supremely intelligent, rational agent. It's more plausible to think, Goff says, that the consciousness of the universe is simply a mess. So, certainly, it's true, as evidenced by Matthews and Sprigg, that some of the thicker panpsychisms do reach for the concept of the divine. Even Thomas Nagel offers a sort of grudging acceptance that something like the divine appears on the horizon. Nagel admits that his speculations about consciousness and matter make us more at home in the universe than is secularly comfortable, and that they have a quasi-religious ring to them, something he says vaguely spinozistic, such that it's difficult to avoid the suspicion that the enlarged conception will be religious. This disturbs Nagel, who admits to sharing in the culturally widespread fear of religion, which fear he himself is strongly subject to. But looked at again, it's not so obvious that Nagel needs to worry. If we consider the cosmic mind, we can admit that this would be a remarkable feature of the universe in which we live. It's not clear that we would need to regard this mind as divine. It might be terrifying, oppressive, a sort of ghastly Metatron-like figure, or as Goff puts it, a mess. Even if it is more unified and unmessy, I might be relatively indifferent to it. What the more ambitious types of panpsychism we amount to, we might think, is just the observation that we're not as alone in the universe as we thought. Does this help? If I suffer from a sense of existential absurdity, does it help if I'm surrounded by others in a similar situation? By loved ones, perhaps, than the wider population of a city, a region, a country, a continent, hemisphere and planet. What I may have done by discovering more forms and levels of consciousness from fungi, about which more in a minute, through to and including a complex pan-cosmic mind, what I've done is broaden the community of solidarity of beings who share my hopeless existential predicament. If this is how I feel about the situation, perhaps I may be unmotivated to name this widened community divine or godlike. I might feel moved and impressed thinking about how much consciousness in the universe, but still not use the concept of divinity. There's a lot of consciousness about when I'm in a stadium of 52,000 other people. I don't call this God. One of the better known and frequently cited pieces of evidence for panpsychism is known as the Wood Wide Web, where trees have been shown to communicate with other trees via fungi. A dense web of communications is formed with the busiest trees at the centre connected to hundreds of other trees. Now some fairly extraordinary behaviour has then been observed a complex system of egalitarian redistribution of carbon. Trees with excess carbon pass some on to their neighbours, with trees exhibiting preferential treatment for their own young. Mother trees at the centre of the network not only give greater amounts of carbon to their own kin, but also send them defence signals, which can increase by a factor of four the young tree's survival chances. All this is remarkable, but it may be of little comfort or interest to me. If I can feel alone and alienated in a crowd of human beings, I can certainly feel the same in a forest, even with busy, cooperative <coughs> and family-oriented trees. <laughs> Yet, on the other hand, we also find some thinkers who have a rather thin type of panpsychism, lower on the scale, they do lean into the concept of divinity. So consider the English 19th century nature writer Richard Jeffreys, 
Jeffreys refutes any notion of design or even imminent teleological order, yet talks of something that the ancients called divine in the sunlight and the pure wind. This is Richard Jeffreys' book. When at last I had disabused my mind of the enormous imposture of a design, an object and an end, a purpose or a system, I began to see dimly how much more grandeur, beauty and hope there is in divine chaos. No chaos in the sense of disorder or confusion, but simply the absence of order. And there is in a universe made by pattern. This draft-board universe my mind had laid out, this machine-made world and piece of mechanism, what a petty, despicable microcosm tried to substitute it for the reality. I look at the sunshine and feel that there is no contracted order. There is divine chaos, and in it limitless hope and possibility. In all of this divine chaos, bringing to mind perhaps Goff's cosmic mess, Jeffreys even reaches out for something better than a god, something higher than a god, by which he means beyond an anthropological projection. So perhaps you can see my problem now. It seems that thinkers at any point in the scale of ontological commitment can invoke or reject the imminent concept of the divine, or God. We can be in a universe with a pan-cosmic mind, find this a remarkable texture of reality, but not call it God. Or we can be in a chaotic universe with dust floating in shafts of sunlight and regard this divine chaos as higher than a god. This search for the god property or the god particle can drive you a bit potty. Where does it end up? For me, this sort of search for criteria is taken to its most impressive, intense, but perhaps slightly obsessional level in the work of the self-declared panpsychist and pantheist Timothy Sprigg. In my view, a wonderful and creative philosopher, but what Sprigg does is he undertakes the striking project of listing 14 conditions where something is appropriately called God if and only if, quote, he, she, or it satisfies at least one of the 14 conditions and satisfies more of them than anything else does. Included in lists, in Sprigg's list, are properties that might appeal to a certain type of panpsychist pantheist, including being uniquely all experiencing uniquely all-knowing, existing with a kind of necessity. Sprigg's proposal is sophisticated and multifaceted. I don't think you should go further along the road if you're on that road of trying to identify properties in the natural world which generate a tendency to call things God. But I submit, for me, it encountered the same problem I encountered elsewhere. We can well imagine different attitudes being taken to all these properties. For example, being uniquely all-experiencing or existing with a kind of necessity. Take numbers, for example. Some might regard the condition as worthy of being called divine, others not. Again, I feel we're not hit bedrock in the explanation, especially when dealing with imminent conceptions of the world. There are not some properties that are self-evidently divine. As something that is triangular, self-evidently must have certain geometrical properties. So noticing all this, we may be inclined to accept Schopenhauer's dismissal of pantheism. The chief objection I have to pantheism, Schopenhauer says, is that it says nothing. To call our world God is not to explain it. It's only to enrich our language with a superfluous synonym for the word world. It must be a very ill-advised God who knows no better way of diverting himself than by turning into such a world as ours, such a mean, shabby world. From another perspective, Richard Dawkins makes a similar claim when asserting that pantheism is sexed-up atheism. 
Is that the best we can do? A sense of failure which we blame on the object, on pantheism, rather than on our ability to understand the object. So I think we can do better than Schopenhauer and Dawkins. And this is the third and final stage of the paper, where I set out an alternative perspective. Now in this section, I've decided to do three different things, two of which might be rather unconventional. First of all, I'm going to tell you what actually happened in relation to framing the idea of the alternative perspective. Only then I'll briefly offer a more formal after-the-fact justification for the alternative perspective. Finally, I'm going to say something more biographical and personal about my motivation for this interest in pantheism, why I want to do better than Schopenhauer and Dawkins. Now, my reasons for this unconventional approach are not simply whimsical. I want to attempt to model a little some of our discussions in the negative natural theology workshops, where participants are encouraged, if they feel comfortable, to explore and divulge not simply formal arguments and intellectual positions, but also some of the biographical, formative, previously unconscious or half-understood motivations and inspirations for these positions. I found the result to be increased empathy and understanding for their formal intellectual positions. It helps to overcome a significant gap in intellectual life, as I've experienced it, which is the distance that can exist between the actual inspiration, the deep hope, the pregnant <coughs> phrase, the generative hunch, metaphor or image, and the final presentation of an idea in a formal paper. A technical problem in the polished formal presentation can then block us from seeing the shape of the original insight. If we experiment with putting some of the original image or intuition back into the presentation, we might receive more helpful insights, more compassion, empathy and help in giving shape to the idea. Or we might, for some, make fools of ourselves and willing to take the risk. I can't be the only one who's felt bored, baffled, or indifferent listening to a conference or seminar paper, only to be afterwards gripped by the issue if I get the chance to converse with the speaker later on, over a meal or drinks, where I find out what he or she is really after. So I feel that this group, the CTRS, amongst friends, may be an accommodating space where I risk bringing forward some of the apres-ski intimacies into the paper itself. Is after all after 5pm. <laughs> I probably won't set out some of this material in more formal published form, but it will be nonetheless the motivation and source of what's published, so you see the added value you get for, well, for coming out on a time like this. <laughs> so first of all, what actually happened? Back in August of last year, I was at the Gladstone Library attending a writing retreat. Another Templeton project under the auspices of the Widening Horizon project, this project run by Karen Kilby and Claire Carlyle. The premise of this wonderful project is that writers of fiction frequently reflect on the actual process of writing and what hinders or facilitates it, but the academic and theological writers hardly ever think about the actual process of writing itself. The writing retreat encouraged us to reflect on the concrete sources of inspiration or frustration as they meet our embodied creaturely existence, shaped by moods, anxieties, habits and hopes. So I was primed in a way for a slightly different mode of reflection. They'd been working all morning, yet another morning, on the question of what puts the theism into pantheism. Sheaves of notes, different concepts circled, tried out and abandoned. 
unity, harmony, beauty, and so on. Frustrated and thinking, why am I doing this anyway? Who cares? Or why do I care? I went for a walk in the nearby woods. It was during the very hot days of summer, with a sort of parched lushness to the landscape. I was thinking on the problem, why would you call the natural world divine? What's the difference made to the world by using this word? I was, I suppose, and if I'm honest, putting the question to God. I'm not a pantheist. I'm a fairly unremarkable and unquirky Thomist, the Joseph Pieper, David Burrell type. Given this, I don't suppose I'm that unusual in putting things to God, although it's not something one usually puts in an article. The thought that emerged, unbidden as it were, was that whether or not you reach for the notion of divinity <coughs> depends on whether you want to dance with me or not, where me here was a sort of personified nature, or God or nature. I do know, by the way, that this is not a word from God. It's the thought that my adult and overheated brain came up with when reflecting in the woods uh, in this mode. What did the thought mean to me? I can put the point by reflecting on where we put the emphasis in the question. How, in relating to the world, do I relate to the divine? The way I had been thinking of it was as follows. How, in relating to the world, do I relate to the divine? We emphasise world and divine. What sort of world is it? And then how does it relate to divinity? But what if we ask instead, how, in relating to the world, do I relate to the divine? Now the emphasis is on the terms relating and relate to. When considering imminent conceptions of divinity, the world of the universe might not wear its divine properties on its sleeves. What matters is the type of relationship that's sought. Perhaps people are more likely to use the language of divinity when and where there is a sense that a proper relationship to what is so named can bring about an optimum state of, well, what? For taking it back to the overarching framing of the negative natural theology project, I suggest the aim might be a type of harmony, consolation, peace, non-alienation, or promise in relation to the limits, compartmentalizations, tensions, and conflicts and fragmentations of our lives. A dance with a partner, or to music, is an intimate, structured, patterned attempt to communicate with and shape oneself to another reality, and in so doing to achieve a type of freedom, joy, excitement, or peace. What if we put the relationship to the world at the centre of our inquiry here? I'll put it in mind here, put in mind of Yeats's lines. O body swayed to music, O brightening glance, how can we know the dancer for the dance? Might it be the quality of the relational dimension that is common across very different conceptions of what sort of world it is? This seemed to give a more helpful account of why one could occupy any point on the ontological commitment scale and either speak with God and the divine or not do so. But what never happened was where a movement or thinker used the word God or the divine and then displayed a relative indifference to this feature of the world. The difference made by using the concept God was it always made a huge difference to action, to practice or effect or to the quality of attention and devotion. When Richard Jeffries watches dust in the sunbeam and calls it divine, he is encapsulating, as he puts it, the story of my heart. When Freya Matthews writes lyrically about the pan-cosmic mind who contains all our thoughts, she's telling us about the source of all our hope and longing. After framing this alternative way of looking at the issue, I came across Mary Jane Rubenstein's glorious book, 
Pantheologies, Gods, Worlds, Monsters, published in 2018. Rubenstein celebrates pantheisms for their capacity for scrambling, I'm quoting now, the race and gender distinctions that Western philosophy and theology insist on drawing between activity and passivity, spirit and matter, animacy and inanimacy, and creator and created. Rubenstein engages with precisely the question I was grappling with, asking what does it add to call the world divine? Rubenstein suggests that the difference is threefold, affective, ethical, and symbolic. I like this and find it to be a helpful way, a friendly way, to fill out my more schematic claim. The difference is that it makes a difference to our relationship to the world. Around the time of my trip to the Gladstone Library, I was also reading some work by Akil Bagrami around the question of when and why we're prepared to regard some causally governed human behaviour as free, and at other times as not free, because externally coerced. After the it depends if you want to dance thought, I could see a connection with Bagrami's discussion. And in a more formal and guarded presentation of the same ideas, I would lead and perhaps finish with this and not mention the thought about dancing. So I'm briefly going to sketch the, the more formal version. In brief, Bilbrami argues that causes don't wear their freedom facilitating or blocking properties on their sleeves. Rather than attempting to find the property or feature of the cause that permits or blocks the ascription of freedom, we should attend instead to our reactions to different types of cause. It's not simply that our reactions track a feature of the cause, rather our different reactions in part constitute our sense of when freedom is an appropriate or inappropriate concept of when we should praise, blame, or feel resentful, or simply observe with neutrality that something has happened. I blame you when you tell a lie or break a promise. I don't blame the piano when it goes out of tune, or the cat when it urinates, or my favorite book of poetry. The reactions of praise and resentment reveal to me that we're in the realm of freedom. Having these reactions is what is meant when we speak of freedom. We do not have to first of all look at the world and identify which causal pathways have the intrinsic freedom spark. The analogy of the pantheism case is this, that it is our reactions to a feature of the world that justify and bring about the ascription of divinity, rather than looking at different characterizations of reality and asking if there is something that should be called divinity within them. That's all I'll say about this. The presentation of Abdul Brahmi's ideas may be too compressed to be helpful, but I won't say any more because I want to leave time and space to finish by speaking about my deeper motivations for the interest in pantheism. There are different levels to this. Closer to the surface, but genuinely important, is my finding some recent philosophy around panpsychism and re-enchanted conceptions of nature fascinating and compelling. But there is more. I've always known that Schopenhauer's dismissal of pantheism, that it is a superfluous synonym for the world, is nonsense. A slur arising from ignorance. Wittgenstein again, don't think, but look. Schopenhauer's put down is a case in thinking and saying and not looking. So as a teenager, I lost my childhood faith for a bit and became a sea of faith style non-realist. At around the age of 16, I then became involved with a group of self-styled druids, the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. This group is still going strong and now has tens of thousands of members all over the world, with high-profile and intellectually 
influential members and defenders, such as the historian of religion, Ronald Hutton. The order also has a busy schedule of meetings and talks and an enviable correspondence and online course. Now, for my 16-year-old self, the non-realism and the Druidry sort of went together. If it wasn't capital T true, then why not? The poetry was good, the rituals beautiful, the meditation exercises sustaining and nourishing, and the ethics deeply humane and ecological, with a strong union attention to symbol and myth that appealed to me. When studying philosophy and theology at university, my non-realism went away, so also did the Druidry, replaced with realism, Thomism, and Evensong. But I don't regret the involvement, and it gave me something that I needed at the time, with some kind and wise mentors amongst the group. Amongst other things, I went on a retreat with the group to the Isle of Iona. There was quite a lot of diversity amongst the group, but what united most of them was their pantheism. And it made all the difference in the world to them, and their lives, in terms of their creativity, their kindness, and playful tolerance, as I found it. And in terms of an ecological sensibility, which at the time, in the late 1980s, stood out as remarkable. Some of them, before it was fashionable, would have been pan-cosmic pantheists. Others were more low-key in their beliefs, but would hug rocks and form a type of energetic connection, just with the sheer non-conscious matter. Genuinely, I saw this, I felt rather awkwardly unable to join in. The unkind term tree-huggers may come to mind. Iona, as you know, may know, is notable for not having trees, hence perhaps the recourse to the rocks. <laughs> Given my experience of pantheists, I'm not prepared to tolerate that it makes no difference put down. Admittedly, my formulation is not that illuminating. The difference it makes is just that it makes a difference. But it does perhaps lead one in the right direction, to actually go and look and find out what the difference in each case might be. And I find it heartening that some of their pantheistic instincts, panpsychism, re-enchantment of nature, are now receiving the attention of some of the finest and subtlest secular philosophical minds of our time. <laughs>